Let's be blunt. The Apostle Paul could not have done his great work without the generosity of Christians. He closes this letter with these words. Even so, you have done well to share with me in my present difficulty. As you know, you Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the gospel and then traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. Even when I was in Thessalonica, you sent help more than once. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. At the moment, I have all I need and more. I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. And the same God who takes care of me will supply all your needs from his glorious riches, which have been given to us in Christ Jesus. Now, all glory to God our Father, forever and ever. Amen. Amen. And heads are going to roll. <laughs> I did give permission to show that. And I'm expecting a raise. <laughs> Most people become very uncomfortable when the pastor starts asking for money. And for good reason. Because of past abuses. The past abuse of, of collecting indulgences is what started the Protestant Reformation. Did you know that? Back in 1517, Martin Luther who was a monk and had really no, he was a Catholic monk, he had no, uh, no intention of starting uh, a new movement. He, he, he didn't want to go and start a new denomination, but he wanted to see reform. That's why we call it the Reformation, because he wanted to see the Roman Catholic Church reformed. They were selling indulgences so that they could build St. Peter's Basilica. I don't know if you've ever been there. I've been there, and it really is truly uh, a wondrous thing to see. Except when you begin to realize that it was built on the backs of, of heresy, built on the back of, of ignorant people who didn't know better. And indulgences, in case you don't know what that is, an indulgence was something that the Roman Catholic Church was offering to, to anybody if they wanted to get their loved ones out of purgatory. You bought a, an indulgence. The idea is that you could lessen your time of punishment in purgatory. Well, it's, it's not biblical. And the idea of, of a, a treasury of merit is what the Catholic Church calls it, is the idea that you could borrow uh, or purchase the merit of the great saints. So for instance, if, if I felt I wasn't quite good enough and I was a little bit scared about dying, that I might just go to purgatory or hell, then I could appeal to maybe Mother Teresa and I could purchase some of her good merit. And that way, having received that merit, I would have favor in the sight of God. Well, it's absolute nonsense. It's not in the scripture at all. But in case you think that it only happened in 1517, it's been happening throughout the ages. And some of us, uh, let me just quickly show you this picture of Martin Luther hammering the 95 Theses on the, on the doors of the church in Wittenberg. 
in case you think it just happened back then, it happens today. I don't know if you recognize this guy. This, uh, this character is Kenneth Copeland. He claims to have a net worth of just around a billion dollars, which is uh, rather fascinating to me. How does someone call himself a follower of Jesus Christ and a preacher of the gospel, somebody who, who is trying to imitate Christ, who said, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. How does this guy get away with thinking he can be a billionaire and bring glory to Christ? And you see him, of course, with his airplane, with, air, with a jet, actually, in the background. And, of course, he's celebrating and thanking God that God answered his prayer. Well, he's not the only one. I don't know if you've ever heard of Jesse Duplantis, but there is a, a newspaper article in the USA Today in 2018, and it says, uh, televangelist says God told him he needs a fourth private jet. So not one, not two, not three, but four. Uh, I mean, I don't know if he's going for one for every day of the week, but that jet is $54 million. And he has a house that's over 34,000 square feet. And in case you don't know how big that is, that would be literally two of our buildings and then a bit more. Two of these church buildings and a bit more. That's his church, or his home, actually, his home, which he says he has 25 bedrooms in. This kind of abuse is what makes it difficult to, to preach about giving. It makes it very difficult. And what you're going to see in just a few moments is that the advancement of the kingdom of God happens through the faithfulness of God's people in their, in their giving. Now, we had a, a couple come to church about a year and a half ago, maybe two years ago, and uh, he was exploring and after the service, it just happened to be a service where I was talking about Burundi, and you know how we raise funds for Burundi. And uh, he got really quite angry, and he said, I'm not coming back here. I said, oh, was it something I said? <laughs> and, and indeed it was. He says, this is all churches do. They only ask for money. Well, folks, we've got two extremes here. We've got, we have the extreme of, of, of the guys like this begging for money so that they can line their pockets and become billionaires, and then we have some people who say, well, we shouldn't be asking for money at all. Well, I want you to know that, that the fact of the matter is, is that right from the beginning, from the founding of the early church, there's always been fundraising. In fact, the Apostle Paul was the very first and the chief fundraiser. He raised funds for Christians everywhere, especially Christians who were suffering and in, in need. And so we come to the end of our book in Philippians, book of Philippians, and my wife Gloria says she wishes this could go on for another 17 weeks, um, but alas, it's over, and we start a new series next week. But here's what Paul says in verses 15 and 16. He says, and you Philippians yourselves, you know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Philippi, the Philippian church, was the only church that partnered with, this, uh, with, with the Apostle Paul in, in giving and receiving. And we'll talk about what that means uh, in just a moment. Uh, Paul says, even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. 
In the NLT, it puts it like this so that maybe it's a little bit more understandable. You Philippians were the only ones who gave me financial help when I first brought you the good news. And then I traveled on from Macedonia. No other church did this. So it's no wonder that the Apostle Paul loved the Philippians so much. No wonder he's constantly speaking of his rejoicing and his joy in these wonderful people. Now, I gotta tell you that the first half of my ministry, so I've been in the ministry for 40 years, the first half of my ministry, I didn't want to ever talk about money. I never wanted to ask people for money, and I, I had seen the abuses, and uh, when I first started in the ministry, believe it or not, people like Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagen and, uh, and a number of these guys, they were, this is, they were at their prime, and I saw the abuse, and it embarrassed me. I, I didn't want to be like them. I didn't want anybody to know that I would be associated with them. So, uh, unfortunately, I, I, I didn't want to ask. I thought that the best way to, uh, to proceed was to be like George Mueller of Bristol. I mentioned him the other day, uh, where he had some over 10,000 orphans that he provided for and built, uh, built numbers of schools, uh, educated 120,000 students, and... Uh, and he never asked for anything. He just would just get on his knees and pray and ask God to meet the need. Well, I thought that was the only way to do it. But I got to tell you, as I matured and understood the scriptures better, I realized that Paul was, in fact, the original fundraiser. He was the first one that asked for funds, and he wasn't embarrassed about it. For me personally, the thing that, that changed my way of thinking was uh, a sign that I saw on the lawn of a synagogue on Wellington Crescent. Some of you will know where that synagogue is. And on the, on the, on the sign, on, on the uh, lawn of the synagogue, it said, we're proud to ask and we're proud to give. I suddenly realized that giving and asking people to give was not the problem. The problem was what was in people's hearts, greed and, and abuse. So this morning, I, I want to draw your attention to 2 Corinthians 9, 1 to 15, and then we'll come back to, to uh, Philippians chapter 4. But Paul says in these verses, in fact, you can read on your own the full chapter, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 later on, to just get a picture and so that you can see that what I'm saying about the Apostle Paul is in fact true. Uh, he had no problem asking the Corinthian Christians and commanding them to give. He had no problem with that. So here's what he says, I, I really don't need to write to you about this ministry of giving for the believers in Jerusalem. The believers in Jerusalem were suffering, they were, they were in great need, um, starvation had hit the place, and Paul understood that his job was to raise funds from the other believers to help the believers in Jerusalem. Verse 2, for I know how eager you are to help. So I thought I should send these brothers ahead of me to make sure the gift you promised is ready. But I want it to be a willing gift, not one giving grudgingly. And then down to verse 6. Remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop. You must each decide in your heart how much to give, and don't give reluctantly or in response to pressure, for God loves a person who gives cheerfully." And God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. So here's what we see here. Paul's command to give had nothing to do 
with becoming rich off the generosity of people as we see in these television evangelists. It had nothing to do with that. The giving he was talking about really is all about caring for God's people and funding of the advancement of the gospel. Very, very critical that we understand that. So this morning, you know that I don't, I don't apologize for asking, but I, I think it's important for you to understand why I'm asking, because this is the way God's kingdom goes forward. It is, look at this, it's impossible. It's impossible to do the work of God without God's people giving. Does everybody understand that? Should I say it again? Would, would that be helpful? It is, it is impossible to do the work of God without God's people giving. It's not possible. This is, how, this is how the work gets done. Yesterday, I had the great privilege and honor of doing a funeral service for my very dear friend that I've known for 40 years, Iris Newman. And uh, as I was preparing the message to preach at her sermon, or at her uh, funeral, um, I actually did some exploring and talked to different people who knew her, uh, especially people who were involved in her church that she was in for many years. And after, after crunching those numbers and putting together some other numbers, I discovered that in the course of her life, she and her husband were directly and indirectly responsible for raising over $4 million. Did you hear that? Over, I got chills going down my legs here, over $4 million in order to, to, to help those in need and to advance the kingdom of God. Folks, I'm going to tell you, I, it's, it's an incredible legacy. And she's left behind uh, a, 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 a huge legacy that will then carry on the work that her, she and her husband did all, all of their married life. This is what we do as Christians. We... we we're glad to give. As Christians, as people who, who have received so much from our Lord, we understand the importance of giving. So the giving that Paul was talking about was all about caring for God's people, caring for the poor, the needy, and advancing the kingdom of God. Well, I want you to see there in verse 16. It says, even in Thessalonica, or as I say in Greek, Thessaloniki, even in Thessaloniki, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Or as it says in the NLT, you helped me more than once. The Philippians, in case you're wondering, were not richer than the Thessalonians. Did you get that? They were not richer. In fact, many Bible scholars believe that the Philippians were actually poorer. They were not as well off as the Thessalonians. But they wanted Paul to have the necessary provision so that he could just focus on preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. Did you get that? No businesses on the side. No side, no, no side streams of income. Or as they say today, multiple streams of income. One, one job, one job alone. And I'm, I'm going to tell you, that is why all these years in the ministry, I have never had a side job. It's why I have not engaged in making money on the side, because I've got one job, and that's to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, the only time, now some of you are thinking, well, what about the Apostle Paul? Didn't he work on the side? Well, actually, he did. He, he actually um, made, he was a tent maker, 
That was definitely part of what he did at first, but he quickly realized that 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 was slowing down the work of the advancement of the kingdom of God. And so we don't see him doing that in his later years of ministry. So what you and I need to understand is that we need to do everything in our power to make sure that the advancement of the kingdom of God goes forward speedily with urgency and without any kind of encumberment. And so the people of of Philippi, the Christians of Philippi, they understood that they needed to get on board to help Paul so that he can concentrate on the one thing, and that is the advancement of the kingdom of God. When I went to my first church, Charleswood Temple, I was a youth pastor. The church paid me what they could afford to pay me. I didn't ask for more. I didn't knock on their door and protest. I didn't say, you got to do it my way. I I didn't say to them, if you don't pay me more, I'm leaving. I'm going to go somewhere else. What I did is I trusted God. I trusted the Lord that he would meet my needs. The question is, did he? As a matter of fact, he did. He had a raven that just lived down down the uh, corridor in my apartment block. Anybody remember Elijah being fed by ravens? I called Julie Jerem my raven. She just lived a few doors down from me in the same apartment block. And she was, uh, she was a greeter at Charleswood Temple. And she was absolutely thrilled and delighted to have the new, young, handsome <laughs> youth pastor living in her block. And she and her husband, it was her absolute delight and joy to, to feed me. Now, she was a Ukrainian cook. Anybody know what I'm talking about? Can I get an amen here, a, a witness? And all the food that that woman could cook, and I put on weight, I'm telling you. I didn't have enough to pay for anything more than my car and the rent and maybe food for maybe a week or two. (laughs) That was all the money I had. And you know what? It never even occurred to me that this was was something strange, that this shouldn't be, that I should do something else. Just believe that God was going to meet my need. And guess what? He met my need. He met my need. He met my need. And Gloria and I found this, we found this throughout our married life. In Greece, when, our, when, when the banks were on strike, everybody was on strike and you couldn't get anything, we had no money for six weeks in a foreign land. We had no telephone. And I think we had just enough money in, in, on hand so that I could actually take a bus down to the center of Thessaloniki because that's where we were. And it'd be enough money to get to the bank to withdraw money, and then I would have money to get home. But I did not have enough money to get to the bank and come home again. So this is, this is, this is how, how, how bad it was. And I say bad in air quotes because, in fact, it wasn't bad. We trusted the Lord. And so all of a sudden, we started getting knocks on our door from our neighbor woman. Gloria was expecting Jesse at that time. And she said, in our culture, if a pregnant woman smells delicious food. She believed your food was delicious. If a pregnant woman smells delicious food and doesn't, isn't able to eat that food, then it can damage the baby. Does God know what he's doing or what? So in this case, our raven lived right next door. Knock on the door, here's, here, here's some stuffed cucumbers, here's some stuffed tomatoes, some peppers, 
all kinds of Slovakia, uh, Musaka, and all kinds of wonderful things. I almost said Slo Slovakia. <laughs> it's been a long time. But every day, our needs were met until our funds came in, and, and suddenly it all dried up again. I want you to understand something here. This is how God takes care of his people. You, if, our, if you're a believer today, you need to get on board with, with God's economy. And you have to stop thinking in your very natural and temporal way. You need to understand we're part of something that is eternal. We have and we function by eternal values. Does, would you say amen to that? Do you understand what I'm saying today? Look at it. If you're not a believer, what I'm saying is going to sound like absolute nonsense. But if you're a believer today and you've begun to experience something of the supernatural at work in your life, you know that what I'm saying is absolutely true. And so rather than, than these uh, Thessalonians getting on board and discovering the joy that the Philippians had discovered, Paul has to, has to teach them, even as I'm teaching you now. So the thing that I was concerned about when I started in ministry is that, I might, is that I might love money more than I love God. And I've seen this happen over and over again. Many, many young men enter the ministry, and they get a taste for making money, and that becomes now the thing that they want more than anything. And this is what Paul, uh, Jesus warned us about this, doesn't he? He says, you can't love God and money. You're going to end up hating one and loving the other, or vice versa. And this is what I wanted to guard my own heart against. Now, some might think that was irresponsible. Why, you, Pastor Allen, you've got a family. Shouldn't you be providing for them? Yes, I should be providing. And the way that I provide for them is by getting on my knees and asking God to meet my needs. Hallelujah. My God shall supply all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, which is the verse we're going to look at in just a moment. I was concerned that there would be competition between my wants and God's command. Very important to understand that. Now, having established that our job as Christians is to support the kingdom work, the advancement of the kingdom, let me share with you now some of these principles of giving that the Apostle Paul shares with us. So look at this, uh, look at this in verse 17. Paul says, right after he says, I'm very grateful for your giving, he says, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. And let's, to, let's translate that into modern English. I don't say this because I want a gift from you. Rather, I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. So what's Paul saying here? Paul says, look, I'm not, I'm not hinting, give me more money, give me more money. I could use more money. What Paul is saying here is, yeah, I need you to give. But as a matter of fact, my needs are all met right now. Now, what, what, when did you ever hear a TV preacher say that? Please don't send in any more money. I have enough. I have enough for my new jet. Please don't send in any more. I got enough for my 30,000 square foot house. Please don't send in any more, more, any more money. No, but what, what Paul is saying here is, 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 is something that you and I need to understand. Is that God wants us to be in the habit of giving. So this is a disclaimer, but it's also a principle. So the disclaimer is saying, I'm not asking for money. The principle is this. I want you to receive a reward for your kindness. Paul is saying that giving is good for us. That's the principle. Giving is good for us. And all God's people said? Okay, you can all go now. 
No? Okay, I'll keep going. Giving is good for us. In Matthew 6, 19, Jesus says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moths and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. So here's the thing. The minute you start giving, especially supporting a child in Africa, or supporting a church in Africa, the minute you start, start giving to your local church, it's a game changer because now your heart is with us. Your heart is with the folks in Burundi. Your heart's with those children. And Paul says this, when you give, 2 Corinthians 9, 8 and 9, or verse 6, pardon me, 2 Corinthians 9, verse 6 and 8. He says, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will get a generous crop, and God will generously provide all you need. Then you will always have everything you need and plenty left over to share with others. Now, you could say, well, that sounds manipulative. Well, it's not. It's a principle. Giving is good for you. Giving, in the end, is what's best for you. I sat down and did some calculating recently. Calculated the amount of money that my wife and I have given to the work of God, to the advancement of the kingdom, and to help those in need. And I can tell you right now that, uh, well, first of all, it shocked me. And then it, it, it occurred to me that God doesn't owe me anything that I, after all, have not been able to outgive God. Are you hearing that? As, as great as my giving has been, God has outgiven me. God has provided for us in miraculous ways. Now, when I started in this church, this church couldn't afford to pay me uh, what I needed to live on. But they said, this is what we can afford. It's the same thing with the first church I went to. This is what we can afford. And I said... That's great. This is God's will. Let's do it. We'll make it work. And I would sometimes wake up in the morning to find that somebody had left groceries in our porch. And I could, then, I could keep you here for another hour just telling you all the stories of God's provision in those early days. Even Don Davidson's uncle, who never went to church, and he told us that this this, he said, this building that you're purchasing, you're out of your mind for buying that. You shouldn't be buying this. You can't afford it. This is not going to be good. It's going to be turned into a dance hall or, <laughs> or, a, or a funeral home. But you're crazy for doing this. And I would just laugh and say, thanks for that. <laughs> but he, he, he loved us. And he would leave a frozen turkey on our front, on our front porch. And it could actually stay there because it was that cold. <laughs> God met our every need. From the most unusual ravens, Joe Sharp. Where did Paul get this? I remember a farmer plants only a few seeds and will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will also get a generous crop. He gets that from Jesus, doesn't he? Yeah. Luke chapter 6, verse 38. Give and you will receive. Your gift will return to you in full 
pressed down, shaken together to make room for more, running over and poured into your lap. The amount that you give will determine the amount that you get back. Folks, giving is good for you. Giving is good for me. And I've tried to be the best giver in the church, but there's a few that beat me out. So I'm told, I don't know what anybody gives here. God will never owe us anything. And I can tell you, you can never outgive God. And so God met our needs when we first came to this church. God met our needs, has met our needs every step of the way. So giving is good for me. Say that with me. Giving is good for me. Giving is good for me. It's good. This is the way we engage with God in a way that we wouldn't normally experience God at work in us. We experience the supernatural. Now, there's another principle that you need to know about, and that is the principle which I call the manna principle. I want you to see here, Paul's not greedy. He says, um, remember this, a farmer who plants only a few seeds will get a small crop, but the one who plants generously will also get a generous crop. Let's move on from there. He says in, in verse 18, at the moment I have all I need, and more, I am generously supplied with the gifts you sent, with, uh, sent me with Epaphroditus. They are a sweet-smelling sacrifice that is acceptable and pleasing to God. So what is this manner principle? Paul is not greedy. He doesn't say, keep it coming, keep it rolling in. He says, I, I have everything I need, so, so you can stop giving to me, but there's other things you can give to if you want. He's not, he's not up there saying, look, I need to buy yet another jet because I got three and, and I need a fourth one. He's not saying that. He's saying, I, I got what I need. At the moment, I'm fine. Don't worry about me. But there's other things you can be concerned about. This is the manna principle. It's, it's what Jesus called my daily bread. And he teaches us to pray, our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Do you remember how God provided manna for the children of Israel? Every day they would get up and there was manna on the ground. And, and God would double the amount on Fridays. Why? Because Saturday is the Sabbath and you don't work on Saturday. Now, some of those Jewish people, they, they figured, well, you know what? This manna is pretty tasty stuff. Let's collect extra. And here's what happened every time they collected extra. It rotted and smelled something terrible. Now, all your neighbors know you didn't trust God. All your neighbors know, they, no, uh, you, you broke the law. You broke God's word. Now, this is very important for us to understand this. Because most of us are used to living the way the world lives. And the world teaches us that we need to be self-sufficient. We, we see in the world principles at work that are in opposition, that are opposed to the principles of God. And this is why so many people are worrying about tomorrow, worrying about what they're going to eat, worrying, worrying about what they're going to drink, and, 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 and the list goes on. So this is why, the Apostle, or this is why Jesus tells us in Matthew 6, 34, uh, don't worry about, about anything, for tomorrow will take care of itself. We, we like to quote Matthew 6, 33, right? Yeah. 
Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things, all the things you need will be added onto you. But then he adds verse 34, which is what most people don't remember. And it's, I always said that Matthew 6, 33 was my favorite verse, but I have to add verse 34. What does it say? Verse 34 says, don't worry about tomorrow. You're going you're gonna to live today. You're going to focus on today. Hey, you know that you may not be around tomorrow? There's a sobering thought. <laughs> you worried about tomorrow for nothing. And so Paul wants us to understand this principle of trusting God for today. The third principle that Paul shares with us is that God uses his people to meet the needs of his people. Really, really critical to understand that. And sometimes God uses us to meet the needs of others. And oftentimes God uses us to advance his kingdom. I want you to see that, that when you and I give, and here's the next principle, that your giving actually pleases God. Do you know that? How many want to please God? You sure? Most of us want to please ourselves, to be honest with you. That's what the world tells us. You have to put yourself first. You've got to look out for number one, right? You've, you've, we've all heard that. But, but Paul's telling us that when we give... We're bringing great pleasure and joy to God. Now, if, if you want to bring great joy and pleasure to God, the first thing you need to do is you need to start sharing, start giving. Paul says that your gift is a sweet-smelling sacrifice. And, of course, every Jew would understand what that meant because the Jewish system of, of making sacrifices would be offered up to God. Now, God obviously is not in heaven going, boy, that smells delicious, <laughs> whatever they're cooking down there. That's not what God's doing. But what Paul is saying is that it is, it is a pleasing aroma to God. God is pleased with us when we give. Now, I'm going to tell you that the difference between a believer and an unbeliever is that, is that the believer wants to please God. The unbeliever has no interest in pleasing God. The unbeliever doesn't care about pleasing God. So, you guys, my friends, my brothers and my sisters, if you and I are going to please God, then you and I need to learn what it is to give. And not begrudgingly but with a cheerful heart, because what? God loves a cheerful giver. It brings pleasure to God. There's another important principle, principle number five. God is the source of all provision. This is what we read in the next verses. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. This verse is a verse that probably everybody here knows off by heart. And my God shall supply all my needs according to his glorious riches in Christ Jesus, depending on your version, the version that you use. I want you to see something here. The Apostle Paul doesn't say, the Philippians will supply all my needs. And if it was a TV audience, he's not saying, my TV audience will supply all my needs. He understands that his need is provided by God himself. Some of us might be tempted to say, my bank shall supply all my needs. In this new generation, my parents shall supply all my needs. <laughs> this is really what we want. We want an elected government who shall supply all my needs. 
I don't want to pay my debts. I don't want to pay my, my bank loans. I don't want to pay my student loans. I don't, want, I don't want to pay for anything. I want everything to be for free. And who's going to pay for this? Well, the government will. Where will they get the money from? No, the, the principle of giving is that we understand that, that even as we're giving, God is providing. Here at Cross Church, it's, it's not the elders and it's not even the congregation that meets the needs of Alan Duncalf. It's God who meets my needs. And I know that. If I felt that, that I was in some way indebted to you, then I would have to do what you wanted me to do. How many know it's not a good idea for the pastor to do what the congregation wants to do? How many know that that's a recipe for disaster? Yeah. There is, there is a, a type of church governance called congregationalism. And I know some may believe in that, but my experience with that is that it's a disaster because unless your congregation is, is fully mature spiritually, you're going to have a congregation that wants a pastor to do things that are not, that are not in line with Scripture. No, I, I, I understand that I answer to God. Yes, I do have to give an account to you, but ultimately, I need to please the Lord. I need to please God. And so I understand that the source of all my provision is in God himself. So Jesus teaches us in Matthew 6 that, in fact, it's a sin to worry about provision. It's a sin to look to others for provision. Jesus says in verse 31 of Matthew 6, So do not worry, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough troubles of its own. And everybody said... We're not worrying about tomorrow. We're not thinking about tomorrow. We're not looking to tomorrow. We're, what does God want from us today? So we don't need to worry about what we're going to eat or drink or wear, where we're going to live, where we're going to work. We trust God. Our lives are in God's hands. Amen? Amen. My family's in God's hands. My marriage is in God's hands. David said my times are in God's hands. All his times are in God's hands. Verse 20, he says, to our God and Father, be glory forever and ever. What does he mean by that? He's saying, when you live the way that Paul's telling us to live, this brings glory to Christ. People look on at us as Christians and they say, how come Alan's never worrying about anything? Why is Alan always so generous? Why is Alan willing to give and share and help? Why is he willing to do that? Well, because I'm living my life to the glory of God. Why is Alan always inviting people over? Why is Alan being hospitable? Why is Alan sharing and being kind? Now, in case you think I'm perfect, <laughs> I don't always get it right. But I'm telling you that I'm actively trying to live my life in a way that brings glory to God. This is what Christians do. We want to please God by living a life that brings glory to God. And this is what Jesus tells us right at the top of the Sermon on the Mount. Live your life so that it causes people to praise your Father in heaven. So I'm not going to worry about where, where I'm going to live, what I'm going to eat or drink. It's all in God's hands. God's going to take great care of it all. 
And then finally, the last verses of this beloved book of Philippians. He says, greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are here with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Paul is calling all believers saints. That may come as a shock to you. How many know that you're, that you're a saint today? If you put your faith in Christ, you belong to Jesus, you are a saint. What is saint? What is a saint? A saint, well, actually the Greek word is actually hagion, which means holy one. Now you thought that you had to have a name like Athanasius or, or St. Francis in order to be a saint or Mother Teresa. No. If you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you are a holy one. What is a holy one? It's somebody who's set apart for God's purposes. So you need to understand this. If you're a Christian today, you are a holy one, which means now that you are set apart for God's purposes. You don't do what you want to do. You do what God wants you to do. You are concerned not about pursuing your will. You're concerned about pursuing God's will. And again, this is why Jesus teaches us to pray every day. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is how we live. We're set apart for God's purposes. We are the people who do God's will. And so you and I understand that as we are giving, we are doing God's will. Paul wants everybody to understand that in order to live like this, you can't do this in your own strength, right? You cannot live a Christian life in your own strength according to your own wisdom or energy or ability. You need the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And here's what I know today. God's grace is abundant and it is absolutely sufficient for all that you and I need. Let's stand together, shall we? Father, we want to just begin by saying thank you. Thank you for your provision for Cross Church. As we stand here this morning, we can say that we, we have no need or want, that all our needs are met, that you have, through your people, provided so that our budget is met, and we're able to pay uh, all the bills, we're able to provide salaries for all your people that are working here, and uh, God, we're able even to do great work around the world. God, how we... Oh, we thank you for the privilege of allowing us to be partners with you, partners in the gospel. That's what Paul called the Philippians, partners in the fellowship of, of the gospel. Father, this morning, as we stand before you with our eyes closed, we're asking you to do a work in us, Lord, that you would forgive us, first of all, for the sin of worrying about tomorrow. Forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us, O oh God, for being uh, double-minded. Forgive us, Lord, for not focusing on the one thing, and that is to please you. And God, we know that as we give, it brings great pleasure to you because not only then are you able to pour out your blessing upon us, but now you're, you are using us to provide for and bless others. What a great privilege that is. Father, thank you for the work of the gospel in our hearts and lives. 
Lord, we thank you that by your spirit, you have enabled us to be a people utterly and completely surrendered to you. And uh, Father, it's your grace. This is the closing words of this letter. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ will be with us. Father, we, we freely admit we need your grace today. So touch us afresh, Lord. Fill us afresh and use us for your glory and for your honor. Lord, that your kingdom may be advanced through the giving and through the efforts of the people of Cross Church. We pray it in Jesus' name. And everyone said it with me. Amen. Tell the person beside you, go advance the kingdom of God.